doing me? I don't know what's going on. How are we doing? Those of you uh, who are uh, new to the crew, there's a lot of chatter going on these days about new faces coming around here because everybody's so excited to see you. I'd just like to say, introduce myself. My name is Dan Mike, and welcome to our house. Hopefully you can find a place to pray today as we're here together. Um, welcome. I would like to make a special welcome to those of you who might be sitting in the room next door with the garage doors. Can we hear you over there? Clap once or twice. Hey, everybody, in the room with the garage doors, we call it the garage, not because it's a place for large appliances or cars, but just because it has garage doors on it. We set that aside for uh, social distancing and for a place to wear a mask, and so I... Nobody's policing that, but if you're in there and you don't have a mask on right now, you, you should put one on. Uh, <laughs> come on, we're trying to help each other out here. Welcome to those of you who are in the garage. We love you. For those of you who are online and watching, uh, Zoom, uh, stream, streaming in, welcome. I can't believe we get to do that. I'm really thankful for people like RJ and Will who figured out how to do that. I never would have been able to do that. I am what... Some consider digitally challenged. What I like to call it is socially analog, but <laughs> I actually really appreciate the fact that we uh, are able to stream online. And over this time, people will be able to, 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 to stay home or to be wherever you are and watch and worship together. I have heard two things, though, I'd like to point out from that uh, perspective is one, I want to validate a feeling. And two, I want to challenge a feeling. One feeling, for those of you who are online, that I've heard is, you know what, we just see the crew, and we just want to be there, and we just miss being there, and I want to validate that. That's, I hope that's not going anywhere. This is your family. This is your, your church body, and you should feel a feeling of, uh, you know, I, I love that you want to be a part of this group. I have also heard that that can turn into a feeling that maybe shouldn't be there, which is, um, therefore, I, don't, I am not a part of the real family. Therefore, I, I'm disconnected from the church body, and, and I'm, not a legitimate, I'm not a part of the legitimate worship service. Or, therefore, I now am just feeling like I'm not actually in anymore. And, and I just want to challenge that narrative. Now, as I was thinking about what your uh, perspective is right now, you can't, we can't see you, but you can see us. And maybe nobody's ever called you to this before, but that perspective kind of reminds me of the heavenly perspective. Not that the angels in heaven are looking at a computer screen and checking in on all of us, but in a way... <laughs> There is kind of that perspective of you are able to see what's going on in this room, to see your body, to see the people that you love. And I want to call you to consider being an intercessor for this group, being an intercessor for your church and for praying. When you feel that feeling coming up of maybe getting distracted or maybe feeling like you're not a legitimate part of this community, I want you to challenge that by praying out a prayer of blessing or a prayer of uh, a protection for your church. I don't know if we can get the camera on the crew right now, but raise your hand if you'd appreciate somebody praying for you. Raise your hand if you need some prayer right now, and, and everybody who's at home, just look out and see if you can see. 
I actually don't know how that works, but maybe there's a way they could see. There are people who need you. You have a place, and I'm calling you that today. So consider being an intercessor for this church and for your family. All right, that being said, my contribution to this gathering this morning will be some thoughts and challenges that I have prepared for you from John chapter 7. As a community, we have been studying the Gospel of John now for the better part of this year. And we took a break for the summer, but since last week, we're back into it. Rod walked us through uh, the first 24 verses of chapter 7. So I'm going to start at 25. And I'll be honest with you, I'm excited to share this morning because chapter 7 and 8 of John have always kind of been a struggle for me. I love this. I love the book of John. Anybody who knows me knows that. But when you get to 7 and 8, it's just, there is a lot of controversy and challenging and Stuff that just, it just seems like it gets one thing after another. And it's always been kind of hard for me to uh, worship through this. But I feel like I've gotten some breakthrough in that. I feel like, um, yeah, I feel like I'm tired of, of apologizing for this session. I really think that God um, has something encouraging for us this morning. And so please stand with me for the reading of God's word, if you will. John chapter 7, verse 25. Just after that whole thing that Rod shared last week about Jesus challenging uh, their contradictions with how they're trying to kill him and with the way that they're not following the law and they think they are. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man that they're trying to kill? That confirms a little. And not so crazy after all, Jesus. Um, here he is speaking publicly, and the authorities are not saying a word to him. Have they really concluded that he is the Messiah? We know where this man is from. And when the Messiah comes, nobody's going to know where he's from. Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yeah, you know me. You know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him. But I know him because I'm from him. He sent me. At this, they tried to seize him, but nobody laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Wish I could preach that th this morning. His hour had not yet come. That verse, that's going to come up even more, so I'm going to save it. But just try and stop the love of God. Just try and stop it. This is so beautiful. I can't believe that verse. Still, many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miracles and signs than this man? Well, the Pharisees started to hear the crowd whispering such things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent the temple police to arrest him. And then Jesus said, I am with you only for a short time. And then I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me. But you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where, where is this man intending to go? We can't find him. Where will he go? Where our people are, are scattered among the Gentiles where, and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you'll look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant that the spirit 
whom those who believe in him would later receive. Upon that time, the spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Messiah. And then others asked, but how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Nazareth, Tucky. Does not the scriptures say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where he lived? Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, yet no one laid a hand on him. Amen. You may have a seat. Anybody ever heard of a sukkah? I'm not a sukkah. Don't call me a sukkah. A sukkah, that's a Hebrew word for uh, temporary structure. I got a picture of one if you want to see it. Picture says a thousand words. A temporary structure, uh, this is the thing that the children of Israel lived in during the wilderness wandering time, during the time that they were in the desert. It's called a sukkah. I think I got one more picture. So you can kind of see inside. It's important to see the uh, sticks and stuff that's the ceiling because um, they used to say that they would, in the Jewish scriptures, that they would look up and see the stars. And I always used to think maybe if I had made one, then I would make a little hole so that the manna would fall through and I could get breakfast in bed. <laughs> sukkah. The plural um, of the sukkah is Sukkot, okay, Sukkot, and this is the term that became the name of the third and the last pilgrimage feast of the liturgical year for the Jewish people, Sukkot. Some people call it the Feast of Tabernacles. Some people call it the Feast of Booths. My vote was the Feast of Huts, but it sounded too much like Pizza Hut, and so I'm just going to call it Sukkot, Sukkot. I got to experience Sukkot as I, when I studied in Israel, my wife and I got to sleep in our version of a sukkah way out in the middle of nowhere with my Hebrew professor who invited us out to, to, to experience this with him. Uh, he lived in a, he stayed in a traditional sukkah. We stayed in just a regular tent, but don't judge us. That's all we could come up with. The children of Israel didn't have an REI when they left slavery in Egypt, okay? They had to do what they could do skin and sticks or whatever, and that's what they lived in, in this time, this humble time of, uh, of living in the desert. It's a very important feast to remember. This is one of the big three, okay? This is a pilgrimage feast, and it is deep in the heart of God that this, piece, that this feast be pushed in year after year to the children of Israel. Why? Well, different from the experience of Passover, different from the experience of, of remembering the story of redemption. This is the experience of remembering the simple roots of who they became uh, from square one of following God. This, this period of 40 years where they lived in the desert was a period where they were able to receive their identity and, be, uh, and, and shed the layers of being slaves and then grow into the nation that they were always meant to be. It's an important place, a simple place, but it's also a humble place. 
Sukkot 101 is a humble place where you say, I don't have anything else but God. I am not worried about anything else but God. And they struggled with this throughout those years, but this was the lesson they were learning over and over, that man does not live merely on bread alone. It's God that sustains us. God is our fire by night. God is our cloud by day. God is our manna. He is the rock that provides water from us. He is who we trust. This theme was supposed to be carried along uh, in their hearts as they came into the promised land, but in to ensure that they don't forget it, they have this feast every year to remember this essential reality. And as this is essential, the elements that they would incorporate into this feast were also the most essential things. This, this is a seven-day feast. And each day, let me tell you, it is a celebration, even to this day. Leviticus 23, this is the only feast that is actually commanded. It's a misfah. It's commanded to rejoice. To be thankful, to have gratitude for the Lord. So this is a harvest feast. And at first I thought, good grief, we don't need to be commanded to be thankful. How is that genuine, you know? But then I realized maybe we, maybe we have our own harvest feast where we also command each other to be thankful. And have turkey and lions. And uh, maybe we have our own thing. Maybe God isn't so crazy after all. This is important to add this to your rhythm and to your, to your lifestyle. And so when you're, uh, when you're articulating your gratitude uh, and the magnitude of who God is to you, you're going to use some things that are very important. So I'd like to remind you of one of the things that was an essential part of the, or is an essential part of the Feast of Sukkot, which is water. The most essential element of survival in the desert. I don't know if you know this, this is water. Not going to get very far without this. So in order to start off each day of the Feast of Sukkot, there would be a ceremony called the Water Ceremony. And this ceremony really kicked off the raucous rejoicing celebration of each day. And so what would happen is there was a, uh, it would begin with a, a parade. Who doesn't like a good parade? Don't think 10 or 12 people think uh, the, the size of Jerusalem, as Rod said last week, has swollen to three times its normal size. Think thousands of people are up on the Temple Mount getting ready to celebrate. A young priest would take a pitcher, a golden pitcher, much like this one that I have here. <laughs> to me, this is a golden pitcher, all right? This is my precious coffee craft. Okay, so he would take a golden pitcher, and he would lead the parade, chanting, singing, what Matt was talking about earlier, Hosanna, Hosanna uh, save us please, save us please, save us please. Chanting, he'll walk out the Temple Mount, <coughs> down the stairs, down the street, to a pool called Siloam, where he would take the pitcher and he would scoop up the water, save us please. Save us, please. He would take it all the way back up, all the way up the stairs, all the way to the altar, where he would do something called a drink offering, where he would take it, say a blessing, of course, and he would pour it over the altar. This is to signify, just like any sacrifice, our valuable thing 
is yours. It's from you. We're giving it back to you. This, this valuable source, this water, we're pouring it out before you, Lord, and we're offering it to you because we're thanking you from where it came from, and we're praying for you to bring it again this fall. The last day of the feast is called Hosanna Rabbah. Hosanna Rabbah, the great Hosanna. The day where uh, everything is amped up. They do this water ceremony seven times. What happens is for the first six times, they do the parade. The priest goes down to the pool. And before he gets it to the water, he stops and goes all the way back up to the altar and, does, and tips it upside down and nothing comes out. He then goes, marches right back down six times, and on the seventh time, he scoops up some water. For dramatic effect, why don't we chant this together just this one time? Follow me. Save us, please. Save us, please. Save us, please. Save us. A little, a little louder. Save us, please. Save us, please. And the priest has a moment of silence before he pours on the altar the water. I like to imagine in this moment, a voice cries out from the crowd. If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. Today I want a simple, a simple lesson, a simple challenge. Jesus is making an analogy to the most essential element of survival, and he's comparing it to himself. Maybe it's time that we evaluate our relationship with Jesus and ask ourselves, are you the most essential element to my survival? Is there something else that I'm putting in me, something else I'm filling up with that promises me that I will sustain you, that promises me that I will be, uh, that I will be fulfilled and satisfied but is not delivering? Jesus requires us one thing today. You have to admit that you're thirsty. For all who are thirsty... For all who are thirsty, come to me. Are you thirsty? As you can see from the beginning of what I read today, all the way to the end in that last verse, I stopped there for a reason where it said, and the people remain divided. There, everything that he says, I'm so intrigued. There's three statements that he makes, and each statement that he makes, people were either rejecting him after what he said, or to my surprise, because this doesn't happen as often, they believed in him after what he said. So I'd like to explain, uh, get into some of that with you for a moment. So the sordid uh, experience that he's in uh, of, of, of the response that he gets is not all that surprising if you remember the tenor of the culture that he's in. He's in a very Socially aggressive culture, all right? I know that we are getting there, okay? Little things can spark big things. Even now, Bible's getting easier to preach than it ever has been. But at the same time, it's not every day. You just say something and people are trying to kill you, okay? And so it is a, why are they acting like this, right? And, and, and we should be asking these questions. Well, let me remind you. The context that they are in, they have been, it's better 
in a way than it has been in a long time. For 400 years since the Babylonian exile, since they returned, there's been about 50 years where they have had freedom from the oppression of an empire, okay? That's it, total. So we've got the Persians, we've got the Greeks, and now we have the Romans. Some of the people that are around Jesus think, you know what, we got it kind of good. We can worship how we want to worship. We can use our own money. We can do, we kind of feel a little bit like we're on our own. And so don't mess this up. We're gaining momentum. We're gaining some, uh, some power here. And on the other hand, as you could probably imagine, celebrating things like the Passover and Sukkot, where you're celebrating a God who has done some mighty acts against uh, oppressors for his people, this would create uh, a good amount of dissonance, right? I mean, imagine us trying to celebrate 4th of July if we were an oppressed people group. It wouldn't make sense for a lot of us, which is why you start to see groups like the Zealots. We're tired of it. They are going to uh, do something about this, and they view it as an act of faith, and everybody else doesn't have enough faith uh, to actually be like Phineas or be like Moses, you know, and, and, and lead the rebellion, lead the insurrection. Either way, nobody agree, everybody agrees this is not ideal. And they're looking for a savior. Whether or not, um, how, how you view who the savior is going to look like will cause uh, some of your leanings of what you're looking for. For example, you can see that they call him two things in this passage, the prophet and the messiah. The Messiah, whenever you see that, the anointed one, this is an allusion to their belief that their Savior was going to come and he was going to look like King David. On your throne, your throne will be established. In his rule, there will be no end. He will rule with righteousness and justice. It's going to be this, uh, this person is going to have this Goliath-killing warrior, poet, shepherd, leader, king, vibe to him. He's going to be from Bethlehem. He's going to be from Judah. Might as well call him David. Let's just, let's just get this king to lead us into battle and to take us to a place where we're established as an independent nation once again. This is what we read when we see the word Messiah or Christ. However, there was also another uh, version or caricature that they were looking for as well, the prophet. This was somebody who was going to look a lot like Moses. Where Moses said in Deuteronomy, one will be risen up who will be like me. A prophet who is like me. So then you get to start thinking, what was Moses like? Kind of came out of nowhere. The hidden Messiah, if you will. He floated down a river on a basket. Or just came wandering in out of the wilderness of Midian and demanded a meeting with Pharaoh. And then he led God's people uh, through the Red Sea and, and with mighty works and all kinds of wonders and miracles. And so you see somebody who's doing some, you know, feeding the 5,000 kind of stuff. And the bread, and, and it's like, eh, I don't know. This guy, I'm pretty, he's kind of Moses-like. So whether or not you're leaning in that direction and you're looking for that or you're leaning in this direction and you're looking for this, it's going to cause the crowd to start bickering a little bit about who he is and what's going on. Which you'd think it's not that big of a deal. It's kind of cool. Why not be looking for Why not be hoping for the Messiah? But it seems like Jesus has a moment of discernment where he hears this talking going on and then he speaks into it. And whatever he says has a sharp divide attached to it. What is he saying in verse 28? You know me. You know where I'm from. 
I'm not here on my own authority, but the one who sent me is true. You don't know him, but I know him, for he sent me. I think Jesus is putting his finger on something here that they have fallen into that's easy to fall into. Let me paraphrase a little bit of, of, of what he's saying. This first line in 28 uh, is meant to be read a little facetiously or even sarcastically. As they come to a conclusion that he is born and raised in Galilee. Oh yeah, you know exactly where I'm from, don't you? He then goes on to say, I'm not here on my own authority. What does this mean? I have nothing to prove to you. The one who sent me is true. And you do not know him. He is challenging something that's going on in this group that apparently looks like that they have traded their relationship with God for knowledge about God. It's easy to do. It's easy to, it's much actually easier than having an actual relationship with God. To have all kinds of knowledge about God, to get all the details in order, and to, to figure out everything you can figure out. All the while, this, is a, this can be a tactic for just not having a relationship at all and not listening at all. I wonder if Jesus is putting a little bit of a test out here and challenging how prideful they can be about this. I mean, some of the people do, uh, respond to him, what I would call, with a little bit of arrogance. At least that's what it seems to me. I, I, I like the definition of arrogance that G.K. Chesterton wrote where he said, arrogance is not thinking that you're right. It's thinking that you couldn't be wrong. It's not thinking that you're right. It's thinking that you couldn't be wrong. And, and they're in a situation where it seems like they're so rigid and inflexible and unable to even uh, give somebody the benefit of the doubt. It's to, and it's blinded them. Blinded them to the extent that they, oh, have so much knowledge about God, so much knowledge about the Messiah, and here's the Son of God standing in front of them, and they don't see it. They don't see that he is a bullseye for what they're looking for. He is like David. He was born in Bethlehem. He is this guy that, that's going to be our Messiah and King. He is like Moses. Everything he does is Moses. They can't see it. Something that's easy to do when we idolize knowledge and we idolize um, the gifts that God has given us is what I like to call trading the presence of God for the promises of God. It's, it's one thing to uh, have the presence of God and move into a promise uh, and enjoy that. God does not care that we have promises, that we get. He promises us things. I mean, if they were in a situation where they were taking Sukkot seriously, then this would make a lot of sense to them. Because one, a part of the story of Sukkot is that they were warned, don't go on into the promise and leave the presence. Moses had this opportunity way back in Exodus where God says, you know what, go on to the promised land without me. I'm sick of you guys, not going to do this. And he said, what, I would rather die out here in the desert, in the simple with you than to go on into the promise without you. But sometimes it's just easier to um, 
to forget God. What, what did he say? When you have the vine that you didn't plant, when you have the house you didn't build, and you have the cistern you didn't dig, you can forget me. You can become an expert, an expert in the vine, an expert in the cistern. Good for you. Well, you have forgotten the most important part, which is that I am a part of your life in bringing you these blessings. And so I view this little section of, 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 of where people are against what he is saying as a moment of challenge of, do you really even know God? Of course, for some, if arrogance is winning the day, this would be a very challenging thing to hear. And they would seek to silence that word right away. There were some people, though, who heard what he said and they became believers. Didn't you see that in the verse? Some people put their trust in him. And they started reasoning with faith. They started thinking, this guy has got to be the guy. What about what he said would cause someone to go from on the fence to all in? And I think if you hear this challenge with a heart of humility, if you are at Sukkot and you are getting back to that place of simple, that place of dependency on God, and then someone comes up to you and says, actually, you look good, you sound good, but I think it's been a while since you've had an actual relationship with God. And a person who is humble, they know the truth in that moment. When Jesus says to them, you don't know him, but I do, and the one who sent me is true, this could be the, mo this could be the most precious thing that they hear that day. Because what he is saying is, the one who sent me is true, and I know him, so trust me. If it's been a while, and you feel like you're trying to get back to that place where you are, are, are in a relationship with God, but you just don't know where to go and what to do, trust me. Do you trust me? Come out into the wilderness. Come out into the desert. And get back to a place of trust. This person, I imagine the pilgrims just standing there discerning and thinking in their heart, you know what, there's so many things that I have been worrying about. There's so many things that I have on my heart and the politics of Caesar and, and of Herod and the things that I'm trying to keep track of. And I just don't, I'm just so into that stuff that I've, I've actually abandoned my relationship with God. Sure, I know how to look right, but it's not there. Trust me. If you want the truth, if you're feeling like a wave that is tossed around at sea and you don't have a rock to cling to and you're feeling hopeless, trust me. The one who sent me is true. Follow me. And they hear it. And deep down in their soul, they know I am thirsty. And I do need to drink whatever you're offering. I want it. When's the last time you came to Jesus just to give me a drink? I'm very thirsty if I'm honest with you. Give me a drink of what you got. His offer stands to those who will admit that they're thirsty. Some of the people believed. Some of them didn't. They sent the police to arrest him. So the police come to Jesus. He says a simple line. I'm not going to be with you for very much longer. I'm going to go. And you are going to look for me. You will not be able to find me. And where I go, you cannot come. What does this mean? 
the people started to, to mull it over. I don't know, what is he talking about? Is he going to go to some Gentile place or what, you, you know? And we can look back on some of these lines like verse 30, 38, 39 where you, you, you see that people didn't understand fully what he was talking about right then. But we can see it now. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about eternity. He's talking about where he came from is where he's going. And the sobering line of this is when he says, you cannot get there. You need to know this. When the Son of God says to a group, I know where I'm going, and I know the gravity of all this, and I know your situation, you can't get there. Yeah, we can respond in a, very, uh, uh, in a lot of different ways to this. We can send the police. We can say, hey, shut that guy up. Do not tell me that I can't get there. Don't start telling me that I have a deficiency. Don't start telling me that I have work to do, that I need you. I don't, who is, how dare you? Of course, there's a lot of different things uh, that are on the table for us to drink other than the drink that Jesus offers us. I'll tell you what, the devil's a bartender for that. He's coming up with different cocktails every day. Settle up to the bar. What did he say? Where I'm going, you cannot come. Here's a drink. That's not true. Drink this. Nobody really even knows what happens when you die. Drink this. It'll make you feel better. Who could, who could really be sure? I mean, you're a pretty decent person if you think about it. Drink this. I mean, if there are people who should be worried, it's like people of different religions. Okay, not you. You're way off, better off than them, so here, drink this. There's a lot worse people in this world than you. Drink this. Become intoxicated with anything other than hearing the truth, which is what Jesus said. Where I'm going, you cannot come. There is something that you cannot do that I can do. I think we need to know this, and we need to hear this. In a world where anything goes, we have a Savior who is saying, actually, you do need me. Who welcomes us and invites us back out into the desert to say, I am desperate for whatever you got, and I'm going to throw myself at your feet and say, I'm giving up control. I'm giving up the, the, pa the patterns that I set in place to ensure that I get there on my own. I'm, setting, I'm, I'm laying down my performance and all the things that well up inside of me that makes me want to make sure that I'm going to get to where you're going. No, I'm laying it down and saying, I trust you. I'm thirsty and I'm drinking what he's drinking. Some of the people heard this and they were won over. Sometimes I think that we don't think that people can be won over by a simple truth about Jesus. That we have to apologize for the exclusivity that he, that he claims. Sometimes people need to hear it. Jesus is the only way. And I'll tell you who I was struck by who seems to be won over by this situation or by the language of, he, of what he said is the police. Did you notice in the text he did not get arrested? What happened to that? I, you can see uh, in verse 45 and 46 that the uh, police go back to uh, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees and they're like, hey, numbskulls, why didn't you arrest him? Where is he? And what do they say? 
Nobody's ever talked like this guy. I mean, how could we? Have you ever heard him? Even his enemies that day heard his voice, and there was something inside of him that said, you know what? This guy, he's got something that I don't have. So I just want to uh, end this time by making one more observation about the final, uh, the phrase that I read to you at the beginning. When Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Who did he say this to? This is important for us, I think, today to remember. Who is there? Anybody that's coming to your mind right now, you're probably right. Who was there? People that loved him. His disciples. And the, the people who came to arrest him. Who was there? People who were on the fence about him. And people who never even heard of him before. Who was there? The people who were about to betray him. People who were about to uh, abandon him. People who were about to kill him. People who were about to, uh, who are about to make mistakes. People who don't have everything figured out. People who maybe have their doubts about him. People who were sold out to all of these people. Jesus looks out and he doesn't see my enemies. He sees people that he loves who are thirsty. That he would be more than willing to pour out everything that he is for you to be healthy. And for you to, have, uh, to be sustained by who he is. If you would just come to him and say, I'm thirsty. When he looks out on this crowd, he sees people that he can love. He sees that in all of us too. This is a message I had in my heart to, to bring to you today. Are you thirsty? Let's just take a moment and pray together. And I will invite you to also pray out loud at a point in this. Father in heaven, if there's anybody here today who is feeling like um, they haven't, it's been a while since they had a real relationship with you, you're pointing that out. Give them the courage and the humility to go back to a simple place. Where they don't have to worry about everything they're worried about, but all they have to worry about is trust in you. The one who will freely give to, to drink those who are thirsty. If anybody's here who just feels like they have been trying to control their destiny, that they have trying to do uh, this thing without you, remind them. You are wanting to be the most essential element of survival that you truly are. By you, all things are made. All things are held together. By the power of your word, you are the most essential person in the universe. And so help us in humility to come before you and reorient, redo what we think is the most essential thing to put inside of our souls and our hearts and orient it towards you. Thank you for looking out to a group of people who are imperfect and saying, I do not care about that. I just want, I just want your trust. I just want your humility. Right now, I just want to invite three or four people to just pray out loud and proud so that your community can hear you and, and we'll join you in this prayer for, uh, pray out your desperation. Pray out uh, who God is to you. Inspire us with where you are in, a t in this time and, and we'll go there with you.